Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, May 30th, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 28th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,035. That's 17035. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 17,036. 17036. This morning, A Vision for You presents the nearness of our Creator. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. The 12-step process of transformation is an exciting journey of growth and change. The big book's directions and approach are simple, simple but not easy. A price has to be paid. The steps do require ego deflation at depth. The steps are a process to dismantle the false self and disintegrate the masks constructed in our attempt to cope with life's difficulties and our personal deficiencies and challenges. The steps are much like the Roto-Rooter that cleans out the sludge, blocking the sunlight of the spirit and the closeness with our creator. Step five is an action step and an ego-deflating experience. Although all of the steps deflate our egos, when it comes to ego-deflation, Few steps are harder to take than step five. However, by doing so, we begin the important phase of setting aside our pride so that we can see ourselves in true perspective. We begin to accept our history for exactly what it is. Step five is our pathway out of isolation a move toward wholeness, toward happiness, and a sense of peace. It is a search for patterns of thinking and behaving that have served us poorly, very poorly. Only when they are revealed can they be healed. Step five is about that healing. It is about having a new life. As the big book says, we begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. Joining us today to elaborate on this very topic from the Big Book and the AA12 is Janet B., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from New Jersey. Janet is a loyal student and a loyal teacher of the 12-step process, and it's with great appreciation and pleasure to welcome Janet to the line. Good morning, Janet. Thank you. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. Um, really excited to be here today. Um, my hope always when I talk is to convince anyone who's listening that, yes, the age of miracles is still with us, 
that there is a God and that he is alive and well and launching search and rescue missions for us addicts. Um, when I wanted to talk about step five, I like the topic, the nearness of our creator, um, because it's one of the beautiful step, step five promises. Um, but before I go into step five and its awesome promises, I'll tell you a little bit about me and do a quick, maybe 10 minute run through of steps one through four, so we're not talking about step five in a vacuum. Um, just a little bit about me, for those of you who don't know me, I first came into OA when I was still in high school, already a full-blown compulsive eater. I kept progressing um, for my first six, seven years in OA, stealing food, stealing money for food. At my worst, I was binging and purging six times a day. I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse that I heaped on it. Um, and even though I looked normal because I was throwing up a crazy amount of time, I was like a walking dead person. Um, I was a compulsive liar and I made up crazy stories. And I would cut myself with a razor and tell people I'd been mugged. I faked a rape, um, a rape and went to a hospital for a fake rape exam taking the pills that the nice nurse gave me so I wouldn't get syphilis from my fake rapist. I was not well physically, I was not stable mentally, and I certainly wasn't well spiritually, even though I believed in God. At one point, someone said to me, if you have such a great relationship with God, why are you still binging? And I couldn't answer that. Um, but I kept binging for about seven years in OA, until someone showed me how to work the 12 steps out of the big book. And then I was introduced to the God who, as I said, I believe launches search and rescue missions for us. Once I committed my life to God, it was like a hand reached, reached in and yanked out the obsession. And September 30th will be 38 years of being protected by God. And I am really excited to talk about step five and its promises and its role in helping us find God. But to start, I want to talk about the earlier steps so we can have some context for step five. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is powerless because this tripped me up for years. I would go to a meeting and say, I know I'm powerless. I can't stick to a food plan. And people would say, great, now that you've admitted you're powerless, now stick to a food plan. Well, that doesn't make sense. Um, and I know now that because I didn't have a solid step one, there was no way any of the other steps could have worked. Um, powerlessness. On page 24 of our book, it says that we are unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So let's break that down real quick. Um, normally my defense against doing something dangerous is my memory, right? So for me, I'm terribly allergic to cats. So stored in my memory are a bunch of data points of cat-induced asthma attacks. So if I'm tempted to go into a pet store or visit a friend who has a cat, my memory sends a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger. Cats will give you an asthma attack. So my memory keeps me from danger. Or the example the big book uses, hot stoves. Well, in my memory are stored these data points telling me that touching a hot stove is dangerous. 
So if I'm about to touch a hot stove, my memory will send a little thought running across the bridge that connects to my conscious mind and says, stop, danger, hot stoves will burn you. Again, my memory protects me. But when it came to food, that was a different story. So I used to binge on these certain kinds of cookies in college. I would always say, I'm just going to have one or two, but would end up eating the whole box of 20 and sometimes more. So in my memory were lots of data points of how I promised myself I'd just eat one cookie, but I'd end up eating the whole box. So there I go again, about to buy a box of cookies, promising myself I'll just have one. And my memory gets ready to send a little thought to run across the bridge to my conscious mind to say, stop, danger. You won't be able to stop at one. You'll eat the whole box, and then you'll hate yourself and get fatter, more miserable. Don't do it. Except when it came to food, the bridge was broken, and the thought could not get across. My memory failed to hold me in check, and I had no defense against the first compulsive bite. I couldn't keep the memory green. I couldn't just tell myself to stay away from certain trigger foods. I had a broken bridge, and once broken, that bridge could never, ever be repaired. I was hopeless. Just like Bill Wilson, when he realized he was hopeless. Now on page eight, it says, he said, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. For me, food was my master, and I had a broken bridge. Okay, so my bridge was broken. No connection between my memory and my conscious mind when it comes to food. And once that bridge is broken, it can never be fixed. Self-knowledge won't fix it. Desire won't fix it. We are 100% hopeless without a miracle. Luckily, though, this program gives me the formula for a miracle. Um, Page 45 again tells me that lack of power is my problem. And then it tells me exactly what my solution is. And it doesn't say the solution is meetings or food plans that eliminate certain foods or fellowships or tools. These are all wonderful, but that is not the solution with a capital S. The solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. And those are really powerful words. The book says the solution is to find a power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So let's play detective. Um, we see that the big book is giving us our first clues here about how to find this power greater than myself, which will solve my problem. So my clues. Well, if this power is going to solve my problem, it must be pretty smart because I certainly couldn't do it. This power must also be strong because this illness kicked my butt, so it has to be stronger than me and stronger than the illness. And this power must care about me. Otherwise, why would he bother trying to solve my problem? Smart, strong, and cares about me. That's a power. That's a God who I can get on board with. Quite different from my childhood conception of a God who kept score and had a big baseball bat waiting to get me three seconds after I died. Okay, so now we have some clues about God. Smart, strong, cares about me. And page 53 gives us more clues, tells me how he can be blocked. By calamity, pomp, 
worship of other things, and dishonesty. Well, that's helpful, but continuing on that page, it says reason only brings us so far. So what do we do after we've gathered our clues? For me, it started in a prayer. Now, why pray? Well, I believe prayer is the currency in the spiritual world. In the physical world, if I want to get a bag of groceries or a tank of gas, I hand the clerk a $20 bill. Money's the currency to get things in the physical world, to get things done. But obviously, I can't hand God a 20 and ask for power over my food obsession. The currency in the spiritual world is prayer. So I prayed. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. That was really my step three when I surrendered to God. And on a practical note, what does it look like? It means I'm out of the outcome business. I no longer do things to get a result. I do them because I'm obedient to God. So, for example, I may have a desire that my kids, who are now 19, go to church while they're in college. I can have a desire. I mean, I am human, and God created me to have desires. But I can't have that as my numero uno goal. I can't have an emotional demand because that's outcome-oriented. So I do just what I think God would have me do. I pray for them. I take them to church when they're little, and I hopefully model good behavior. But um, whether or not they go to church while they're in college is none of my business. I've surrendered it to God. And I believe God won't judge my success by whether I've raised church-going kids. He'll just judge me or look at me and look at my obedience to him. And living that way is how I stay sane and abstinent, realizing that very few things are really my business. Then I went on to step four. I looked at character defects. I looked at my resentments. And especially, I looked at how I was wrong. The big book tells us that if we harbor resentment, if we're a safe harbor for resentments to hang out in, we're cut off from the sunlight of the spirit. My only hope of recovery is being protected by God. So if I'm cut off from that, I am in big trouble. It's like being cut off from my oxygen supply, my spiritual oxygen supply. So I had to resolve my resentment and a couple of things I avoided doing. I avoided just saying, well, this person is spiritually sick, so I just need to see that and pray for them because that just set me up on a prideful hilltop. If I have a resentment, there's always something wrong with me. And a lot of times, my part was, I think people should run their lives in a way that makes me happy. With my kids, it was often, I think my kids should make life choices that will make me happy or make my life easier. And that's selfish and controlling and idolatry. Or I was often wrong with, I think I should only have to do things I want to do, which is selfish and self-centered. So I looked at my resentments and then I looked at my fears. And I love how the big book talks about fear. Um, it says that fear is an evil and corroding thread. Evil. Ugh. Um, so I had to look at the reason for my fears. And when I drilled down, I always found that I didn't want to be sad or I didn't want to be uncomfortable. 
But this program teaches me that I have to learn to live with discomfort. So, for example, I had a fear when my daughter was 16. Um, I was afraid to discipline her. And if I drilled down, I would say, I'm afraid to discipline her because then once she's older than 18, she'll leave home and want nothing to do with me. Okay, if she leaves home and wants nothing to do with me, then when I'm an old lady and my husband and son are dead, now neither of them are sick, but when they're dead and it's just me and my daughter, she won't invite me over for holidays. If that happens, I'll be all alone for holidays and I'll be sad. So I saw I wasn't disciplining my daughter as an insurance policy to have some place to go for Thanksgiving dinner 20 years from now. And that's selfish. So I asked God to remove it and see what would he have me do? What would he have me be? And he would have me discipline my daughter appropriately and leave the results up to him. And by the way, um, my daughter and I have a really good relationship now. I'm quite sure I'll have an invitation to her Thanksgiving table. The jury is still out on whether or not my kids will go to church while they're in college, but that's none of my business. Um, I finish up my step four with an analysis of my harm, my past relationships, and creating a sex ideal. And now I am ready for step five. So I am going to go to the big book. I'm going to start on page 72, and I'm just going to read the first full paragraph. Having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude, a new relationship with our creator, and to discover the obstacles in our path. Three things there. We've admitted certain defects. We've ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We've put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part which when completed will mean we have admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapter. So this is such a cool paragraph. It's telling me why I have to do this. And it gives me three reasons. One, I'm trying to get a new attitude. I'm trying to change, to not be such a self-centered, nasty person. But look at the second reason. I'm trying to get a new relationship with my creator. See, this program isn't about just believing in God. It's about having a relationship with him and a new one, one where I'm submissive to him and he takes care of me. And this step is going to help me with that. And the third reason to help me with the obstacles in my path. What are the character defects that are blocking me from my new relationship from my creator, with my creator, from my spiritual oxygen supply? Um, the book says I've already started to see what the defects are. Now they're about to be cast out. Look at that wording. They're about to be cast out. I don't do the casting out. I'm passive here. God does that. That's how it works. I look at my defects. I admit them, but then he removes them. I think we read these words so often sometimes that it's easy to miss out how mind-boggling awesome this is. They're my defects, this big wall that I've built between myself and God. But what does God do? 
does he say, well, Janet, you built this wall, you caused this mess, you clean it up yourself, and I'll be here waiting for you when you're done. He does not. He comes in with a broom and a mop to help me clean it up, to help clean up the parts that are too hard for me. I mean, he just keeps proving his love to me over and over. So in the next paragraph, they tell us another super-duper important reason why we can't skip this step. It says, if we skip this step, we may not overcome drinking. We may not stop binging. The text says that when people try to avoid this humbling experience, almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of this program, they wondered why they fell. Well, how come they did fall? Well, by not disclosing everything, they were dishonest. And yes, dishonesty by omission is still dishonesty. Again, at the top of page 73, it says these people wondered why they fell. And just an aside here, if a person goes into relapse, they should always know why they fell, what caused it, not just, well, I'll just dust myself off and start over tomorrow. No, we need to see what caused it. What pit did we fall into that led us into relapse? Um, not doing a thorough fifth step is one of the causes of relapse listed in this book. The AA 12 and 12 goes into great de detail on this on pages 55 through 57. Um, after talking about all of the different consequences of avoiding step five, including irritability, anxiety, remorse, and depression, they conclude by saying that most of us would declare that without a fearless admission of our defects to another human being, we could not stay sober. It seems plain that the grace of God will not enter to expel our destructive obsessions until we are willing to try this. Wow. That is a strong statement. But let's not miss that beautiful imagery there. The grace of God enters in to expel my destructive obsessions. What a cool image. God just comes in and kicks out the illness, just chases out the food obsession the way that a woman with a broom might tell a cat to skedaddle and get away. That is how strong God is. And that's how much stronger than the illness God is. As a side note, um, it is always important for me to remember that it's the grace of God that gets rid of the obsession, not any hard work that Janet might do. It's as if there's a raging hurricane and my house is flooded and there's a helicopter coming to rescue stranded people. My job is to get up on the roof so that the helicopter can reach me. I can't just say, pick me up by my front door, I'll drown. I can't be that defiant. But please, God, let me never be so arrogant as to say that I rescued myself. All I did was climb up those 12 steps to the roof so that he could rescue me. Anyway, back to the big book. Um, continuing on page 73, they say that more than most people, we lead double lives. We're like actors. To the outer world, we present our stage characters. We want to enjoy a certain reputation, but know in our hearts, we don't deserve it. So we've got this guilt, and guilt is only helpful if it encourages us to really admit our character defects. 
If I take 50 bucks from your wallet and I feel guilty, well, I should feel guilty. Then my conscience is doing its job. And by the way, when I was in the illness, I didn't have a conscience. It came alive as I started working these steps. Um, but anyway, the guilt I feel over taking that 50 bucks from your wallet is only helpful if I admit it, go to you and tell you, and give you your $50 back. We often carry around a vague sense of guilt, and we just beat ourselves up and say, oh, I'm a piece of crap, and we call that humility. It isn't humility. Um, the book continues on to say that the alcoholic, or for us, the compulsive eater, is revolted by what he does on his sprees. It says, coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. We can't be vague. We can't have these boogeymen in the closet. We can't say, I think I sort of kind of did some not so nice things in my past. We can't go to God like that. I needed to go to God and say, I faked a mugging and caused harm to this person. I lied to that person. I cheated here. I stole from Sally. I was nasty to Susie. I need to be specific. Why? Because if we don't get these things out, the book tells us that we end up pushing these memories far inside ourselves, which leads to constant fear and tension, which leads to drinking or binging. Fear and tension, mental and emotional drain. Then the book continues by saying that psychologists generally don't work for us because we are generally not honest with them. And again, they're hammering home honesty, saying we must be entirely honest with somebody if we expect to live long and happily in this world. So I want to say a few things about honesty because it seems to be real important to the founders of this program. Basically, if we are not honest, we are not going to recover, period. If we're not honest, as it's as if we took a big black magic marker and wrote a gigantic keep out God sign and put it over our heart. God won't come in when we're dishonest. He just won't. Ways we're often dishonest is with our sponsors. Often about food, right? We lie by omission when we don't tell them things we should. Or even not about food. We know the things that we should say. And think about it. If I'm dishonest with my sponsor, then I've made an idol, a false god out of my sponsor, thinking that my relationship with my sponsor is, is what's going to get me recovered. But a sponsor's job is to help me get a relationship with God. I'm better off honest with no sponsor than dishonest with the world's best sponsor. And if I'm dishonest with my sponsor, I'm really stealing from her. I'm stealing her time. She, she should be able to go out and work with someone who means business. So we are people who have to be honest. Whether or not earth people need to be, I have no idea. Not my business about them. But for people like us, it means no lying, no cheating on husbands, no cheating on taxes. We are people who have to live in a way that's rigorously honest. So I'm going to flip back to the AA 12 and 12 for a bit. Um, I'm on page 60 where it says that until we actually sit down and talk aloud about what we've so long hidden, 
our willingness to clean house is still largely theoretical. When we're honest with another person, it confirms that we've been honest with ourselves and with God. So now they're still talking about honesty, but they go a step further. They say, going it alone in spiritual matters is dangerous. Yeah, sure. It would be a lot easier for me to say to God, yeah, God, I faked a mugging and I'm sorry, than to tell another person. It's harder because there's fear there. What if my sponsor doesn't like me anymore? What if she rolls her eyes and says, I can't believe you did that? What if she judges me? And just as an aside, a sponsor needs to make sure, 100% sure, that the sponsee feels safe enough to confide anything. I always tell my sponsees that anything they tell me in a fifth step goes with me to the grave. And I'm not a judge. By letting my sponsees know some of the crazy things I've done, I mean, I faked a rape. Um, Who am I to judge anyone? That helps them feel safe. Um, Another aside, in this age where a lot of us are sponsoring long distance, I find it helpful to do the fifth step and pretty much all the step work on FaceTime or Skype or Zoom. It's my experience that a deeper bond can be formed between sponsee and sponsor if we can at least see each other, even if we can't be in the same room. And again, that helps a sponsee feel safe and cared for. So back to the 12 and 12, still on page 60, it says, it is worth noting that people of very high spiritual development almost always insist on checking with friends or spiritual advisors the guidance they feel they have received from God. Surely then, a novice ought not lay himself open to the chance of making foolish perhaps tragic blunders in this fashion. While the comment or advice of others may be by no means infallible, it is likely to be far more specific than any direct guidance we may receive while we're still so inexperienced in establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. Establishing contact with a power greater than ourselves. That is mind-boggling. The power that flung the stars into the sky wants contact with me, wants a relationship with me. And I am on my way if I'm on step five. The 12 and 12 says the next thing I'm to do is to find the right person to, do my in, to hear my inventory. Generally, it's someone who has done this work before. It's usually our sponsor, but the big book says it doesn't have to be. Um, however, there are some caveats. On page 74 of the big book, it says we can do our fifth step with a member of our family, um, but we can't disclose anything to them which will hurt them and make them unhappy. We have no right to save our own skin at another person's expense. And I think that's a rule for both our fifth step and for life. I have no right to save my own skin at another person's expense. I have to put the welfare of others ahead of my own. Then the big book gives us another rule. Again, a rule not just for step five, but for life. We must be hard on ourselves, but always considerate of others. Being hard on ourselves gets a bad rap, but it's necessary in the sense of being ruthless about admitting my character defects and admitting where I'm wrong. Um, 
recently I caught myself thinking, oh, I hope something bad happens to so-and-so. I called my sponsor. I confessed mean-spiritedness. I asked God to remove the defect and to forgive me. And then I said a prayer for so-and-so. I think that's what it means to be hard on ourselves. Okay. So once we have the right person, we go to it, holding nothing back. I had a sponsor who, when I was done, said, okay, now tell me your deepest, darkest secret. We hold nothing back. It says on page 75 that we pocket our pride, and boy, do we pocket that pride. But then the promises. And these are some beautiful promises. But just like I didn't want to talk about step five in a vacuum, I prefer not to talk about the fifth step promises in a vacuum because it is so cool to see the progression of the promises through the steps. The first promises are with step two. There are no step one promises. I'm just admitting I'm powerless and my life is unmanageable. It's as if I went to a doctor and admitted I had diabetes. Okay, I admit it, but just admitting it changes nothing. So remember, the big book tells me lack of power is my problem. So what I need in order to get better is power. These steps are a miraculous process, really like a miraculous formula for getting more and more power. On page 46, it talks about us getting our first infusion of power with step two. It says that as soon as we admit the possible existence of a creative intelligence, a spirit of the universe underlying the totality of things, we began, we were just beginning here, we began to be possessed of a new sense of power and direction provided we took other simple steps. So once I say, okay, it's possible there is a God and it's possible this God can help me, and I start doing what I think this possible God might want me to, I start getting power and direction, just enough power and direction to get me to step three. And then step three. Top of page 63 gives me more promises. It says we have a new employer with a capital E, meaning God. God's my employer. Being all powerful, he provides what we needed if. So when we see if, we know it's a conditional promise. If. We keep close to him and perform his work well. And then it says that established on this footing, we become less and less interested in ourselves. So the spiritual experience is starting here. A spiritual experience is when God rewires my heart to make me more like him. So instead of being selfish and self-centered like Janet is, I become more tolerant and more loving like my creator is. Okay, continues on with third step promises. We become less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more we become interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. And now listen to this. As we felt new power flow in, so we're getting more power here in step three. We got a little bit in two, and we, we're getting a little bit more in step three. And, but wait, there's more Step three promises. We enjoy peace of mind. I never had that before. We discover we can face life successfully and we become conscious of his presence. That means we start realizing, oh yeah, there really is a God. 
and he's not just up in the cloud somewhere. He didn't just create the universe and is now spending the rest of eternity watching Netflix. Then it says we begin to lose our fear. We begin. We begin to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. The hereafter. I don't have to be afraid anymore of a God standing there with a baseball bat ready to beat me up five seconds after I'm dead. We are reborn. Then the four-step promises on the bottom of page 70. We have now begun to comprehend the terrible destructiveness of resentment and have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. On page 71, it says that the, the hope is that by this point we are convinced that God can remove the self-will that blocks us from him. So now we go beyond belief, faith. Now we have trust. And then there's something that sounds yucky, but is really great. The last line of chapter five promises that if we've done this process right, we've swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about ourselves. Ugh. But of course, only by doing that can we proceed to step five and its glorious promises. These are my favorite promises out of all. After step five, we are told that we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. That was my experience. I felt as if I'd been nearsighted all my life and someone gave me a pair of glasses. Trees just looked greener. That's the best way I can describe it. It says we can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. What a great visual that is. Um, I was just in Aruba. We'd come up from the beach and brush off our bathing suits, and the sand would just fall from us. And that's what continues to happen here. Remember, it starts in step three. We begin to lose our fear. And now it says our fears fall from us. And then this we begin to feel the nearness of our creator. So not just an awareness, we know that he's near. Whether I'm going through stress or surgery or the pain of rejection, God is right near me. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs. That was me. I was never an agnostic. I always believed in God. Guess what? That knowledge did nothing for me. If I were a diabetic and I believed that insulin could help but never injected it into my arm, it would do me no good. So we had beliefs before, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. God's rewiring our hearts. The feeling that the drink problem, or for us the food problem, has disappeared will often come strongly, often. I take that to mean at least 51% of the time, we are not obsessing about food. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Oh, and by the way, if you think that's awesome, just wait until you finish step nine, where it tells us we will seldom, that means hardly ever, be interested in liquor, or for us, food not on our food plan. And when we're tempted, we recoil automatically. So stick around for a deepening of the miracle. Um, the 12 and 12 has some more step five promises that are really cool. On page 57, it tells us that we are people who are tortured by loneliness. And with this step, we begin to get rid of that loneliness. Oh, yes. 
the book tells us. The fellowship helps us in the social sense, but even with the fellowship, we, quote, still suffered many of the old pains of anxious apartness, end quote. That was me. I could be in a room with 100 people and feel like I was the only person on the planet, like I was in some kind of glass cage. What's the solution? The 12 and 12 states the answer so clearly. Step five was the answer. It was the beginning of true kinship with man and God. And the promises keep coming. On page 58 of the 12 and 12, it says, we began to get the feeling that we could be forgiven no matter what we had thought and done. When I'm telling my sponsor all the horrible things I've thought and done, and she looks at me the same way she did before and doesn't tell me to get lost, I start feeling that maybe I can be forgiven. It also tells us that it's often while working on this step that we first truly felt able to forgive others. So we start knowing that we can receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. Another thing on page 58, it says we start getting more humility. And I love the definition there. They define humility as a clear recognition of what and who we really are, followed by a sincere attempt to become what we could. Isn't that pretty? Um, Page 59, yet another promise. Um, See, they just keep coming. Um, It says that only by discussing ourselves, holding nothing back, only by being willing to take advice and accept direction, could we step foot on the road to straight thinking, solid honesty, and genuine humility. Pretty interesting, straight thinking, but of course. Um, In chapter five of the big book, it says that once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So by me doing the spiritual work, my thinking starts to straighten out. And step five in the AA 12 and 12 ends with this on page 62. This feeling of being at one with God and man, this emerging from isolation through the open and honest sharing of our terrible burden of guilt brings us to a resting place where we may prepare ourselves for the, fo- for the following steps toward a full and meaningful sobriety. Look at that word, toward. We get to a point where we are no longer running from food. We're running toward a full and meaningful sobriety, toward a happy, useful, productive life, toward an ever-deepening love relationship with God. I'm not running from anymore. I'm running toward. If someone's sitting here today who says, well, that sounds great, but I'm not even sure that there even is a God, you can start with a maybe prayer. And it might go something like this. God, I don't even know if you exist. And if you're there, I don't know if you care about me. But if you're there and if you care, I need help. And the worst that could happen is that you're talking to dead air. But what if there really is a God? What if there really is? And what if that prayer is a catalyst that allows God to start a renovation project on our hearts 
so that we have a spiritual experience, so that he begins to rewire our souls in such a way that our plans and priorities become more like his plans and priorities. That is the solution offered by the big book. That is the only solution offered by this big book. And when that happens, the food obsession doesn't stand a chance because really and truly, the age of miracles is still with us. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Janet, for your beautiful presentation this morning, your experience in teaching, very riveting, delivered with such clarity and personal insights and inspiration. Greatly appreciated. Today's share ID, 17,043. That's 17043. Janet's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so please stay tuned for that. And we will transition now to question and answers. You can pose a question to Janet by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Trisha C. Trisha C. Jason K. Jason. Annabelle Z. Annabelle. Jody E. Jody E. K.L. K.L. Okay, thus far I have Trisha C., Jason K., Annabelle D., I believe, Jody E., and K.L. Anyone else like to get into this group? Okay, let's proceed with Trisha C., Questions only, please. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tricia C., compulsive eater in New Hampshire. Hi, Janet. Thank you so much for your experience at Strength and Hope. And it was just so beautiful. And I'm so grateful for the metaphors you use always to make things so clear. Um, so here's my question. What if a sponsee or someone says to you, I experienced some of the step five promises, but not all. And, uh, but I really think I disclosed everything. What should I do? Should I just proceed or go back? What, what would you say? Thank you. I would say keep going. Just keep going because even at the end of the step nine promises, it's, let me um, find the exact wording for you. It says, um, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. So I think um, as long as people are experiencing some and doing the work, that's how I would gauge it. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Trisha. Jason Kay, your turn. Good morning, Jason Kay. Uh, thank you so much. Really, really got a lot from that. Um, what uh, What do your fifth steps look like logistically? Do you give a lot of feedback? Do you try to make sure you do them all in one sitting? Um, like, how do you relate to your sponsees? Do you 
yeah, just logistically, I think Bill doesn't say much about what that process actually looks like, and I'm curious how it looks for you in practice. Um, I think ideally it's good to do it in one sitting, but I find for myself probably a shortcoming in myself that if I'm if I were to do it more than a couple hours, it's hard for me to stay focused. Now some of them only take a couple of hours, which is great. Um, but I try and get them done quickly. So it's like, okay, we work on it today. And if we don't finish up, we try and finish it tomorrow. Um, because I think it's better for the sponsee, but ideally, yes, in one sitting. And I do give feedback, um, especially for the resentments, because I find that, you know, we all had to be taught. And this is my time to kind of teach them how to analyze their part. It's, I think it's one of the hardest things is for us to see our part. And this is a skill that I, I know I need every day to see my part in things. So I often, I mean, there's some people who just get it right away and they go through it and it's like, yep, I, I agree. Yep. You, I think you've analyzed it right. But I, um, but I'll caveat that when I tell them like, okay, here's what your part may be. I always say may because the same action could be caused by a different motive. If one person is um, acts a certain way, it may be because they're people pleasing. But for someone else, it might be because they're mean spirited and they're being passive aggressive. So um, I always say, well, you know, could it be this or could it be this? And often a person will say, that's it. Um, so I do give feedback in order to to be helpful, and I find most of my feedback is in the resentment section, in the where I was wrong part. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Annabelle, your turn. Thank you. Thank you so much, Janet. Um, really appreciate it. My name is Annabelle Z. And uh, I had two kind of questions. One is I missed what the step two promises were. What, where, you, where you read those from? Page 46. In the big book or the AA 12 and 12? Big book. In the big book. Okay, I'll find those. Okay, and then the other is with the fifth step, when when you're doing a 10 step kind of all the time, you realize, oh, I really had that person off or I really was rude. And then, uh, you know, you call and do a 10 step, but you're kind of doing it, well, I should give them that. So I'm doing it with whoever, you know, I call somebody and I do the 10 step. But when you're talking about the freedom we have with one person to tell them all in the fifth step, but now my sponsor might not know that piece. So how do I, you know, and, and same thing if I'm working with a sponsee, they're telling other people their 10th step stuff, so I'm not going to fully know their, um, you know what I mean? I'm not going to, there could be some additional things going on that might be more revealing, especially since when I did the, the steps with vision, it was very, or this time around in a way, very quick, which is excellent because I stayed abstinent. I got to the meat of it. I got the promises. Does that make sense? But I, but I mean, there's a lot left out, if you will, because things continue to come up and more is revealed. But then I share it with somebody else because I'm doing 10 steps. So how would you address that? Great question. Okay. Um, 
I can only tell you what I do, and this may be a lot different than what other people do. So again, this is the big book doesn't really address that. I don't think specifically, but this is what I personally believe and I counsel my sponsees. I do not believe, and I personally don't, call random people who I don't know to do a 10-step for the reason that um, not everyone is, is um, going to give me proper feedback, and I have a right to decide who gets to hear my personal stuff. Um, so I never will post something like, I need to do a 10-step, is anyone available? I have um, a few people in my network who I will call, and then when I talk to my sponsor, I'll, you know, review with her, like, hey, you know, a couple of days ago, I had a resentment and against so-and-so, and I worked it out, and, you know, kind of give her the high level. Um, the other thing I do that I hopefully is helpful is when my sponsees are through the steps, I pair them with another one of my sponsees or someone else who I know has worked the steps um, according to the big book to be 10-step partners. And they send their nightly reviews to each other and they talk to each other about stuff going on. So they have someone. So now they have me as a sponsor who they're loosely in touch with. Right. Once I take someone through the steps, I don't talk to them regularly. It's, I have a call me when you need me kind of relationship with them and see them at meetings, that type of thing. So they have someone and I encourage them to get a network of a few people. So that is how I handle it. I know other people do it differently and I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying my preference and my experience is that I don't go to people I've never talked to. That's it. Thank you. Thanks, Annabelle. Me. Jody E., your turn. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Janet, so much for that beautiful presentation. My question is about the fourth step, I guess, more. Um, do you have your sponsees? list their resentments, fears, and sex conduct only, or do you add a fourth page on other harms or anything else? So I have seen it been done both ways, um, where people list regular harms outside of the sex harms, and then sometimes people just leave it for the ninth step. I tend to have people list them here because um, in step eight it says we have our list, we made it when we took inventory, but I go into more detail, like more depth when we get to step eight. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, Jody. KL. Your turn. Hello, good morning. Can I be heard? I hear you. Okay. Morning, Leah um, and Janet. Thank you so much for this powerful share. I kind of really needed it. I'm relatively new, um, so I'm about to approach. I'm doing my fourth step, 
And Janet, I just wanted to ask you something. Can you expound on your step one? You said at first, someone said you must admit that you're powerless over food, which you did. And then they said, you know, keep away from the food. That's kind of what I did. That's where I am. Um, and I'm going through this step slowly. The first three weeks, it was easy for me to not binge, keep away the, from the food. But I feel now like there's like a constant negotiation, a constant tug of war, and I feel tempted. So was it like that for you until you went through step five? And should I be telling my sponsor this stuff? And that's my question. Um, I'll just share my experience with you. And then if you, if that doesn't answer your question, feel free to just prod me some more. Um, for my first seven years in OA, where I knew I was powerless, but not getting better, I never got more than two weeks of abstinence together. Um, plenty of times I couldn't even make it to lunch. So I couldn't stay abstinent until I started working these steps and getting access to power. Because just admitting that I was powerless over food does nothing. I guess it would be like if I broke my leg and, you know, the doctor said, yep, yeah, you've got a, a, a clean break of your leg. And I said, okay, I believe it. I admit it. I'm not, it's not going to heal. It needs to get set in a cast. I need to go to physical therapy, all the other stuff. So for me, my abstinence, my real abstinence started um, when I just said, I'm beat. God, I give up. I'll do things your way and find you however you are. Um, the, according to the book, we don't get any power until step two, and we get progressive power throughout all the steps. So I could do step five and get power, but then if I don't immediately continue on to step six, I'm in trouble and I'm going to relapse. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you, KL. Who else has questions this morning for Janet? Star one to unmute. I need your Kristen name. Kristen R. Her. Kristen R., is that correct? Yeah. This is Audrey MP. I have a question. Okay, gotcha, Audrey. Stacy K. Stacy K. Anyone else with questions this morning? Star one. Donna D. Donna D. Sandy B. Sandy. Okay, we'll go with that group. Beginning with Kristen R. Hi, this is Kristen R. in Virginia, um, Grateful Compulsive Overeater. What would you, thank you for your presentation, Janet. What would you tell uh, someone who called you and said, God is not in my life, is not working for me, I don't know if I believe, I feel like I'm faking it. Um, what would you tell them to do? Okay. So first, I would see if, 
if they're willing to go to any lengths, because if they're not, it's not going to work. Um, and then I would spend some time on some of the stuff in We Agnostics with them. And because in We Agnostics, it tells us that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So that means um, when God created me, he gave me two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and he planted the idea of himself in me. But it says what blocks it. Pomp, circumstance, and worship of other things. So I would go over that with the person. Um, first, I would see, are they willing to believe? Like, are you willing to believe that you're wrong and that maybe there is a God? If they say no, I'm not willing to believe it, um, then I probably wouldn't do much. And I take that from page 181, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. He says, if you think you are an atheist, an agnostic, a skeptic, or have any other form of intellectual pride, which keeps you from accepting what's in this book, I feel sorry for you. Um, if you still think you're strong enough to beat the game alone, that's your affair. But if you really and truly want to quit drinking, or for us, quit binging, for good and all, and sincerely feel you must have some help, we know we have an answer. So I guess the first thing I do is see, are you willing to believe that maybe there's a God? And we can work with that if they say, yes, may, uh, I'm willing. I don't believe it, but I'm willing to believe. And then I would do two things. I would do what I had just said, ask them to look at possible blocks and prejudices. And then I would ask them to do that maybe prayer. Like, okay, God, you may not exist, and I may be talking to dead air, but if you do exist and you do care, please help me. And then God will prove himself. Thanks. Thank you, Kristen, for your question. Audrey MP, it's your turn. Good good morning, special edition. Thank you, Leah. Thank you, Janet, for that very honest and thorough um, talk with us this morning. I'm all ears. I had a question. You talked about um, the freedom promise in step two, but but I think you talked about a freedom promise. You talked about a lot, a lot for me to take in and perfectly done. How did you see freedom in your food after you gave a thorough fifth step? That's my question. How did how did that promise come true for you? Were you able to? you know, give up something you weren't willing to give up. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Very simply, I was able to stick to a food plan. I had a food plan from before, and now I was able to stick to it. I never could before. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Audrey. Next up, Stacy Kay. Good morning, everybody. This is Stacey Kay in Colorado. Thanks for your service, Leah. And Janet, great presentation. I always appreciate all your service. Um, so tell me if this isn't appropriate for step five um, topic. But um, I'm wondering, I know I go to God in all things, but um, 
an AA friend of mine, she's taken a girl through the steps. She got to her fifth step, and she learned that she was um, bulimic, and she was like, it was kind of halting her in her recovery path um, with alcohol. And we're always told, you know, that we want to, you know, take care of the main, the, the problem is killing us first, right? Like I hear that often. Um, now here she is, alcohol is killing her. She's got the alcohol down and she's, um, you know, telling her sp- AA sponsor that, you know, she needs help with this bulimia, that it's killing her. So my question for you is, you know, I gave her, she came to me and I gave her resources and she was very grateful, you know, some things to listen to from Vision for You and some other podcasts and told her she could call me anytime. But I wonder, I wonder what you think about doing the steps with somebody, like starting them on this step one process while they're still working through the other steps in their other problem, or if that's going to be a big mess, or, you know, you would just sort of be there as a um, a fellow to help her with the bulimia. I feel like, you know, she's in, she's got two dual problems that are both killing her. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. So I have a couple of very short thoughts. Um, one is that other than step one, the rest of the steps are all the same. So in other words, if, so, if someone's doing um, a resentment inventory in AA, it's, if they're doing it right, it's going to be the same one they're doing in OA. It's not going to be anything different. It's just the, the first step is really the only thing that's different. And as to whether or not someone could start the steps in OA while they haven't finished yet in AA, I guess I'm just going to say I have no opinion on that. I, I just, I have no opinion. I'm sorry. I can't be more helpful. Um, I might take it on an individual basis, like talk to the person and get an idea of it, but I, I really don't have an opinion. Thanks. Thank you, Stacy K. Donna G. Star one to unmute. Oh, thank you. Um, and thank you, Janice, for your wonderful um, presentation this morning. I had a question about when you're working with a sponsee and um, you're doing the fifth step and they say that they cannot find, there's well, I don't want to. They're, I'll put it this way: they're adamant that they have no part in it. They have no part in um, the resentment they have towards somebody. What kinds of words do you use to gently open them up to the concept that um, you know what you had said earlier that there's always a part that we play? How, how do you specifically get someone who's very adamant, very I had nothing to do with this? So I actually want to caveat what I said. If someone is, you know, raped at gunpoint or a child is molested, they have no part in it, zero part in it. So there are things where we have no part, right? We wouldn't, you know, I mean, so I would never tell someone in that situation, you had a part. Um, 
But for our regular run-of-the-mill resentment, I might say, well, let, let's think about it um, and maybe give an example from my life and then maybe, um, maybe give them some options. So, for instance, when I was doing a fourth step, I had a resentment against an elderly relative of mine who wanted to see me fairly frequently, and I didn't want to see that person. So I had a resentment, and I said, you know, why? This person wants to see me fairly frequently. It affects my ambition, right, to have my time to myself. Um, and I said to my sponsor, I don't see my part. I go see this person. I go with a smile on my face. I'm kind. I'm considerate. I'm helpful. And she said to me, how about this? I think I shouldn't have to do things I don't want to do. And then it was like, oh, I saw my part. That was a dagger in my heart. And then I said, yep. And then I said, okay, my defects there, selfish and self-centered and entitled. So it might help, again, unless it's the kind that I first talked about where someone was, you know, abused, physically abused or something like that, um, I would maybe gently give some suggestions like my sponsor did to me, and that helped me to see my part because I just couldn't see it. Um, the other thing in the AA 12 and 12 under step four, it gives some advice to sponsors for, it says there's usually two types of people, the type who um, beats themselves up over everything and the type who thinks they've never done anything wrong, and it gives some guidance. So that might be helpful. What page is that? It's, um, I don't know the page. It's oh, okay. in the AA, AA 12 and 12 under step Thank four. Thank you. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Donna. CNDD. Hi, this is Sandy B. in Virginia. Thanks to all, all who's doing service on this meeting. And question, um, how do you deal with or what do you do when a someone has put down the their put down the food, their binge food, and they are in a state of irritability um, and how do you deal how do you tell them or explain to them once we put down the food then we use then we turn to god um because they're my thing is, I'm trying to phrase this, um, we don't learn what our character defects are until four and five. We start talking about that. But before we get to those steps, how do you say we're turning to God and your ear will be caused? Um, does that make sense? I think so. So okay. first off, um, the way I am, my experience of it was not, I put down the food and then I start working the steps. I had to start working the steps in order to put down the food. And I think that's really important. Um, when I started, it was like you have to be absent a certain number of days before you could start doing something in the steps. Well, I couldn't do it. So I never got there. Um, but a person has to start working the steps in order to put down the food. Now, there may be some people who can put it down 
for a short amount of time, even without the step. But as my friend Melissa says, um, willpower has an expiration date, and we never know when that day is. So what I would do is I would encourage the sponsor to get that person through the steps quickly. Doesn't need to take a lot of time. Get them through quickly. And if they're irritable as they're going through step two, step three, okay, they're irritable. But then get them to step four real quickly. It really shouldn't take long at all to get someone through the first three steps. It could, um, the sponsor who I told you about who pointed out how I was um, selfish toward my elderly relative, she went through the first eight steps in a weekend mm -hmm. and never picked up again. So we don't have to give, you know, 50 assignments on each step. So, so we can sit with someone and work and get them through it quickly. So that's what I would do. I would encourage you to get this person through quickly, understanding that it's the steps that will allow us to keep the food down, to put it down and keep it down. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, for the question. Final invitation for questions this morning. Who else has a question? First, Janet this morning, star one to unmute. Michelle O. Is that Michelle? Yes. Okay. Hold on. Anyone else? Final invitation for questions. Kathy K. Kathy K. Melissa G. Melissa G. Okay, very well. Let's begin with Michelle O. Good morning, Michelle O. in Michigan, compulsive overeater, not recovered. Janet, thank you for sharing. Um, I want to ask if you would be willing to expound a little bit more about something you just said. Uh, I relate to you. I've been in program. I've never gotten through the steps because I wasn't able to stay abstinent and put down the food. I'd like you to say a little bit more about maybe the intersection between your, ab your abstinence and your step work. How did that materialize for you to, you know, to where you were able to stick with your meal plan and be abstinent? And when did you really need to go back to step one because you weren't able to be abstinent? I hope that question makes sense. Thank you. Okay. Um, again, I can just share my experience. Um, for seven years, I was not abstinent. I had a step one. But again, if I say I'm, I have diabetes and my life is unmanageable and I don't inject the insulin, I'm not going to get better. The step one does nothing for me. Um, so for me, it was at a meeting. I'd been stuffing bagel chips down my throat behind a locked bathroom door before the meeting. And I went to the meeting and I took a sponsor and I took a sponsor I knew I could not manipulate. And I was asked, what are you willing to do? And I said, anything. And I meant it. And boy, did that sponsor make it tough on me. Um, and it never occurred to me to say, what are you kidding? I was just grateful there was someone to help me. So I took a sponsor at that meeting, and I knew I was going to start working my butt off. And I left the meeting, 
And so I was willing to go to any length. That's always what's required because on page 58, it tells us if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps. I already knew I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. And that night, I just, um, as I mentioned, I just said a prayer. I said, God, I've always had fixed ideas of what you were like and how to worship you. I'm willing to admit it's all wrong and start over and let you show me what you're like and how to worship you. And then I just started doing everything I thought God would want me to do. Um, so I basically, without really knowing it, did steps two and three together um, that night. And that was the end of my binge. We are not supposed to go backwards and have to take step one over again. We are supposed to keep moving ahead. Um, in the end of the chapter, Two Wise, it says, it's better that he has no relapse at all, as has been the case with many of our men. So it's like relapse isn't supposed to be a part of recovery. So practically how that could work. If I'm with someone and I know I don't have the luxury of time because they really can't stop, pre-COVID days, um, we had people, I mean, I had people come over. I had people stay over. Um, there was a woman who was bulimic and she just couldn't eat her meal. I said, come eat your dinner at my house. So that first meal, she came and ate with me. And then we could sit down and in an hour or two, get someone through step two. They're abstinent now when they first start talking to me. Great. I can work the first three steps with someone in a few hours. And then they've got enough power to go home and do their fourth step. So, I, I mean, to me, the solution is to do it quickly when we have the luxury of time. Then I can maybe have them go a little deeper. But if I don't, it's like, okay, let's see if we can get you to the point where you believe there is a God who cares enough about you to restore you to sanity. Um, and for me, the ABCs on page 60, 60 are helpful um, to go through with the person. Do you believe you're a compulsive eater and can't manage your own life? Okay, usually a person says yes or they wouldn't be here. Um, and I have them go over that whole broken bridge thing to see how there's a disconnect between their memory and their conscious mind. Then I ask them, do you believe no human power could relieve your compulsive eating? Generally, they say yes, or they wouldn't be here. But then see that God could and would if he were sought. So I say, do you believe God could restore people in general to sanity? And they say, well, yeah, I've been on a vision for you, and I see 100 people restored to sanity. Of course he could. Okay, great. Do you believe that God could restore you personally to sanity if he wanted to? Now, he may not want to, but could he? Well, it's almost impossible to say, no, he couldn't for me. Well, he could if he wanted to, but, and then we get to the next part, that he would if he were sought. Do you believe he will restore you to sanity? And this is often where a person says, no, I don't believe he will for me. And then we probe, why? And often it's because, well, I've done this really bad thing. Well, okay, um, 
That's why we have a ninth step. We've all done really bad things. You'll have a chance to fix it. Or I've tried a hundred times before and it hasn't worked. And I, and then I might hold up my cell phone and say, you know, if I tried a hundred times to take a picture pressing the off button, it's not going to work. But then if my son shows me, mom, here's the camera button. You've been pushing the off button. Suddenly I can take pictures and it doesn't matter that I failed a hundred times. And so one of those two things usually helps them. And then if he were sought, and then the person says, well, I'm not sure I'm seeking him right. So then I would say, make a list of all the things you think you need to do to seek God and get the boogeyman out of the closet. Let's see what we need to do to seek God. And the last thing is sometimes a person's conception of God, they have a negative conception that's so entrenched. So then I would say, do a visualization. Picture God the way you want God to look like, the way you want God to be, you know, gentle, kind. Okay, get that picture in your mind. And then picture your old conception of that, like, boogeyman, badass God with a, who's holding a baseball bat. Then have the new God, visualize this, have the new God push the old God out, push the false God out. So I find that by doing those things, that'll get someone to the point where they can start trusting God enough to make a commitment to do the work and to give him their lives. And then it's just a matter of like doing the inventory and the fifth step and making the amends and all the rest. So I know that was a very, very long answer to a short question. But I hope in there was something that helps you. It was great. Thank you, Michelle O. Kathy Kay, your turn. Hi, good morning. <clears throat> thank you, Leah, and thank you, Janet, so much. I got so much out of your share. Um, <clears throat> I'm interested if you could say more about what you personally do to live in steps 10, 11, and 12 daily, and whether you periodically um, go through the steps uh, from 1 to 12 in another format or with another person, whether you have found that to be useful to you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, great question. Um, so I do a nightly review, and I have a partner. I've had the same partner for mm, about three years now, and we share it with each other, and we talk to each other about our defects and, you know, stuff. And if something comes up during the day, I'll do an inventory, and I'll get in touch with her or my sponsor or, you know, I have a few other people who I feel comfortable sharing stuff in my life with. And I pray and meditate every morning. I, my goal is to do at least 45 minutes, and I usually do it. There are, you know, the occasional morning where I might oversleep or something. But in that, I try to incorporate um, some kind of spiritual reading. Um, I, so I do some spiritual reading. I pray, and my prayer consists of gratitude, um, praise, asking God for strength and for whatever I might need to carry out his will. 
and praying for other people. And I meditate. And what I generally do is I set a timer, put on some, you know, music and sit for 15 minutes. And I say, God, I pray for knowledge of your will for me and power to carry that out. And please show me how to help the still struggling compulsive eater. And then I wait because if God doesn't want to tell me anything, that's fine. But what if he does? I better be sitting there quietly listening with a pen and paper in case um, he does. And for me, and if I have any like specific problems or questions, I'll go to in my 11th step, I'll, I'll ask. Um, for instance, I had a resentment against someone recently and I couldn't shake it. I say the resentment prayer, couldn't shake it. So I said, God, please help me to see her as you see her. And God gave me the answers in the lines of a song. I see her dressed in white, every wrong made right. I see a rose in bloom. So I write this stuff down. And step 12, I, um, I do a lot of work with other people. Um, I try and do a lot. And I practice these principles in all my affairs. I'm never dishonest. I mean, when my kids were in their teens and they would say, Mom, did you look at my cell phone and read my text? They would know that if I read their text, I would have to say I did. Um, so I'm honest. I try and think of others. And um, I just try and live this way of life in my job. My boss knows he could leave a million dollars on the counter and I wouldn't touch it. Um, I just try and live this way of life. That's Thank it. You. Thanks. Thank you, Antonia. Thanks, Kathy Kay. Our final question for this morning comes from Melissa G. Hi, um, this is Melissa G. from Michigan. Thank you, Janet B. Um, I appreciate you. I guess the one question I had, and I don't, hopefully it makes sense, but if looking back on how your program started back, you know, I think you said 30 plus years ago to how it is now, what would you say is the like most significant way it grew? Uh, so yeah, but I really appreciate you. Thanks. That is a great question. Um, I, you know, in the book it says our next step after we finish the first nine steps it's like we continue to grow in understanding and effectiveness, and that should keep up for our lifetime. I would say that the thing that has probably helped the most is um, in the past couple years being way more intentional and working harder with others. Um, I think that would probably be the thing that's made the most difference is working harder with others. And I've continued through the years to find ways to deepen my relationship with God, different studies or different prayer practices. So I think those two things. And being ruthless with myself about my defects, you know, never sugarcoating it, being ruthless. You know, that when I'm a mean, nasty person, I come right out and say, God, I was a mean, nasty person today. Please forgive me. 
remove it, and then I'll make my amends. So those practices. Thank you, Melissa G., for the question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you, Janet, for spending time with us this morning and for your beautiful presentation. Appreciate all that you shared with us this morning. Again, the share ID for today, 17,043-17043. We're going to close now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only we realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.